This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. For today's recommendation, I'd like to go back and re-recommend Vasari's Lives of Artists, Volume 1. This volume includes the passage on Botticelli and many of the artists we've already discussed. Vasari is such an invaluable resource when studying this period, particularly because there's so little documentation, and as I have said before, he practically invented the modern discipline of art history. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 10, The Birth of Venus. Botticelli's work has become synonymous with the early Renaissance. His painting of The Birth of Venus is probably almost as well known as the Mona Lisa or the creation of Adam on the Sistine ceiling. Botticelli would become known as a painter of sensual figures, though late in his life he would have a mystical conversion and come under the influence of Savonarola, the mad monk of Florence. Soon after his death, his work would be overshadowed by the great achievements of the High Renaissance, though they all owed a huge debt to Botticelli. He would fade into obscurity until being rediscovered by English art historians in the 19th century, just as Piero della Francesca. Eventually, Botticelli would be recognized as one of the greatest masters of Renaissance art, and his painting of the birth of Venus would become one of the most reproduced images from the early Renaissance. Botticelli was born to a tanner in Florence sometime in 1444 or 1445. A tanner, as you may know, is someone who makes leather and is in the business of tanning hides. Sandro Botticelli's older brother, also a tanner, was described as being fat like a barrel. And this is how Botticelli comes by his nickname, for Botticelli means little barrel. At 14, he was apprenticed to a goldsmith, most likely another older brother. While in the goldsmith's workshop, he would become enamored with painting. As you may have noticed, over the past several episodes, quite a few artists come from the workshops of the goldsmiths, and there was quite a bit of overlap between the goldsmiths and the painters of Florence. The painters often worked very closely with the goldsmiths, and this is likely how Botticelli was first exposed to painting. His father agreed to allow him to pursue painting, and he was apprenticed to Fra Filippo Lippi around 1462. Of course, we discussed the details of Fra Filippo Lippi's life in the last episode. As far as Botticelli's apprenticeship with him, we have very little information during these years. We don't know exactly how long he stayed as an apprentice of Lippi, 
but he would remain close to his former master throughout his entire life. And when Lippy passed away, he would even handle the details of his funeral. In Lippy's workshop, he would have been exposed to the work of Masaccio, and this would spark his ideas about how to portray the figure as if it was in low relief. By 1470, he would open his own workshop and begin taking on clients. It was during this early period he would complete the Adoration of the Magi for Santa Maria Novella. The piece contains portraits of Cosimo de' Medici and his sons. He would also undertake a project illustrating Dante's Inferno with engravings. Vasari considered Botticelli obsessed with this project and says that he became so obsessed that he neglected all of his other work. Quoting Vasari, and this abstention from work led to serious disorders in his living. Apparently, he became so involved that he neglected paying jobs, and he could scarcely support himself during this project. In 1481, he was brought to Rome by Pope Sixtus to paint the newly built Sistine Chapel, named, of course, after the Pope. This is the same chapel that would later be painted over by Michelangelo. Botticelli would in fact become a mentor for Michelangelo as well as Leonardo, and while he was not their master, they would all have a close relationship with each other while they were in Florence. Sometime in the 1480s, he would become engaged in a joint project with Filippo Lippi's son, Filippino, Ghirlandaio, and Perugino at the Medici Villa near Volterra. This brings us to the period of Botticelli's first major work that we're familiar with today. Primavera, or La Primavera. Botticelli never called the painting this. The title actually comes from Vasari, who called the untitled piece Primavera in his Lives of Artists. The piece is painted in tempera sometime around 1482. It depicts a group of mythological figures and an allegorical representation for spring. The painting contains six female and two male figures. The figure of Cupid is blindfolded. This is probably an allusion to the old saying that love is blind. And according to Elena Capretti, in her book simply entitled Botticelli, there are nearly 500 identifiable plant species within this painting. The imagery in this painting is likely based on that of Ovid's book Fasti, and it describes the moment that Zephyrus, the cold winds of March, kidnap Chloris, a nymph. He ravishes her and later he marries her. She becomes a goddess and returns as the eternal goddess of spring, scattering rose petals on the ground. Venus, the goddess of love, presides over the entire scene in the middle of the painting. If you remember way back in episode one, with the rise of the Medici, we talked about the merging of pagan platonic thought and Christian thought. And this painting is one of the best examples of this. And the new merging Neoplatonism argued that even pagan symbols and myths contain elements of truth and point to the true God. To bring this into a modern context, if you're familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, you might see similar arguments on the nature of myths in some of their writings. Essentially, all of these other myths have elements of truth, but not the complete truth. Christianity is then seen as the true myth, as Tolkien referred to it. And I believe this is a very similar idea to what we see developing during the Renaissance. And of course, both Tolkien and Lewis were scholars of medieval literature and would have been very familiar with these ideas. In the context of Botticelli's painting, Venus is sometimes associated with Mary as ruling over both earthly and divine love. 
This interpretation allows the painting of mythological subjects to have both pagan images and Christian allegories. To the left of the painting is the figure of Mercury. Some art historians believe this might be a portrait of the young Lorenzo de' Medici, and he may in fact be the one who commissioned the piece. Sometime after the completion of La Primavera, Botticelli embarked on one of his most famous works, and this is The Birth of Venus. It, too, is inspired by classical mythology. Now, we don't have an exact date for this piece, but we believe it's sometime in the mid-1480s. Again, the painting is in tempera and was most likely commissioned by one of the Medici. In Botticelli's conception, Venus is born fully formed in a seashell and taken to shore. Here she represents both earthly love and passions, but also divine love. Many believe that it was intended to lift the viewer's minds toward the divine away from earthly matters. As far as Botticelli's style in this piece, many historians believe that he was trying to intentionally recreate the style of a Greek vase. And this may explain why it seems uncharacteristically flat compared to his other works. There are also several examples of Greek statues that have very similar poses to that of the figure of Venus. I've included an image of one of these statues on the website, along with an image of the birth of Venus. Looking at these statues, it's almost certain that his work was based off of these. As for the face of Venus, many have speculated that it was, in fact, Simonetta Vespucci, who we will discuss in just a minute. Both this painting and La Primavera are on view at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Now let's discuss Simonetta Vespucci. She's going to play a pivotal role in Botticelli's life. Botticelli never married, and supposedly he had an aversion to the idea. He did, however, seem to have quite the affection for Simonetta Vespucci, the wife of Marco Vespucci. The pair hailed from Genoa, and Marco was a cousin of the famous explorer Amerigo Vespucci, for whom the Americas are named. Simonetta was much admired by the Medici family, and she and her husband became part of the Medici court. This is where Botticelli would first lay eyes upon her. Botticelli would use her as the model for several paintings, and likely she is the model in The Birth of Venus. She is a recurring figure in much of Botticelli's work. Upon her arrival in Florence, she would become known as the most beautiful woman in the city, and she would be pursued by every nobleman, including the Medici brothers. Botticelli, however, never seems to have had much success with her and seems to have suffered from unrequited love. Tragically, Simonetta died just a year after arriving in Florence at only 22. All of Florence mourned her death, and most of all Botticelli. Perhaps this is a real reason why he never married. He would complete the birth of Venus nine years after her death, and the same female figure, presumably Simonetta, would continually appear in his work for the rest of his life. Another important work of Botticelli's from the same time period is the painting of Venus and Mars, dated to about 1483. In this piece, we have two reclining figures, that of Venus and Mars. Venus watches Mars as he's sleeping, while they are surrounded by satyrs who play with his armor. This painting is typically thought to represent sensual love, but there are some elements that might lead us to question this interpretation. The couple are placed in a haunted wood, though the sea where Venus was born is visible in the distance. A swarm of wasps or hornets fly over Mars's head, 
which might allude to the fact that love sometimes inflicts pain. Or it could also refer to the house of Vespucci, whose coat of arms include a wasp. Venus has an unusual expression as she stares at Mars, almost one of concern. One can only wonder what's going on in her mind, but she does not seem to be in a state of bliss. It's very possible that the figure of Venus is also Simonetta, and perhaps this gives us another hint at the mournful expression of the figure of Venus, as well as the wasps that are visible over Mars's head. In the 1490s, Botticelli would come under the influence of the monk Savonarola. Savonarola will get his own episode, but briefly I'll give you a description here. He was a monk at San Marcos in Florence. This is the same Dominican convent that Fra Angelico once called home. Savonarola preached a puritanical doctrine, and he also stated that the wars with the French and the eventual French conquest were divine retribution for Florence's sins. He instituted a series of theatrical events known as Bonfire of the Vanities, where secular books and artwork were destroyed and burned as sinful idols. Some believe that Botticelli may have burned his own work in this orgy of destruction. Savonarola would lead a movement to expel Piero de' Medici, Lorenzo's son, and set up a theocratic autocracy with himself as the head. He would soon be excommunicated by the church, and once Florence fell back under control of the Medici, he would be executed. As I said, Savonarola will be a subject of a future podcast, so stay tuned for that. Botticelli became so affected by this movement that he refused to paint secular work. You begin to see a mysticism in his work of this period. According to Vasari, he would eventually cease to paint altogether. Quote, he was so ardent a partisan that he was thereby induced to desert his painting, and having no income to live on, fell into very great distress. For this reason, persisting in his attachment to that party, becoming a Piagnone, he abandoned his work. End quote. A Piagnone was the name given to the followers of Savonarola. One of the paintings we have from this period is the mystical nativity. And it's here that we see the influence of Savonarola. This piece was painted in 1500, but it harkens back to a more medieval style. Botticelli painted this piece in oil, and it is the only work he ever signed that we know of. It depicts a celebration of angels, a heavenly and earthly delight. But it also contains an apocalyptic undercurrent. Dark imagery is hidden throughout the piece. We are looking at both Christ's birth but also his return, as described in the book of Revelation. The cave that is the stable reminds one of the tomb where Christ would later be placed after the crucifixion. This imagery and this dual representation of both Jesus' nativity and his second coming are clearly the influence of Savonarola, who preached that the apocalypse was near at hand. In the mid-19th century, this painting would be bought by an English art collector, and helped to inspire the artists of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. After changing hands several times, it would find its way into the collection of the National Gallery in London. Botticelli would have few painting projects towards the end of his life. He would be granted the honor of being on the board that decided where to place Michelangelo's statue of David. Leonardo would occasionally come to visit the elder painter, but Michelangelo would seldom visit because he was engaged in projects in Rome. His primary patrons were all dead, and he was only able to eke out an existence in his later years because of a stipend left to him by Lorenzo de' Medici, 
according to Vasari. It is said that he sought solace in his old age by studying the works of Dante. Botticelli would die poor and alone in 1510. He would be buried in the church of Agnesante at the feet of Simonetta Vespucci. Just as with Piero della Francesca, Botticelli was rediscovered in the mid-19th century by British art collectors. There was a renewed interest in the painters of the early Renaissance, and this was encouraged by the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, who incorporated elements of Botticelli's style into their work. He became seen as the greatest master of the early Renaissance. His lifetime represented a golden age for the Florentine Renaissance. By the time of his death, the power of the Medicis would be broken, and the Renaissance would spread to other cities like Rome and Venice. Don't forget, the images discussed in this episode may be found in the Episode 10 Supplemental on therenaissancepodcast.com. I would like to take a brief moment to thank everyone for listening the past few weeks. I have a couple of announcements. The podcast is now listed on Stitcher, so you may download the podcast there, as well as iTunes. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the show using whichever platform you prefer. While I'm away on baby duty for the next four weeks, please be sure to share this podcast with your friends and help me spread the word. Also, please consider writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher. This will really help the podcast become more visible in both iTunes and Stitcher rankings, and this spreads the word about what we're doing. I will also be posting periodic announcements on Facebook, so be sure to like the Facebook page. You may find a link to the Facebook page on the lower right corner of the RenaissancePodcast.com. If you would like to support the show, please remember you may use the Amazon search bar in the upper right corner. A percentage of each purchase will go to the show and help keep us running. You may also make a donation through PayPal. There is a donate button located in the upper right corner just above the Amazon search bar where you may make a secure PayPal donation. No amount is too small and we appreciate all donations. I plan to be back in four weeks and when I get back, we'll delve into the last three artists of the early Renaissance, Verrocchio, Perugino, and Ghirlandaio. These are the three men who will train the giants of the high Renaissance, Leonardo, Raphael, and Michelangelo.